From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. We had 1,300 miles to go, and we had about 17 days to do this. You're just beginning in a journey. We didn't know where we were going to stay or how we were going to get to where we were going to get. It's a road map. So it's quite the undertaking. That has many twists and many turns. Now we're leaving with no money, no food, no extra clothes. We must follow where that map takes us. Many twists and many turns. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio arts and crafts. We suss it all out, what's on the internet, the airwaves, the archives, and then we compile the best of what we hear. Where there's sound, there's ReSound. How about it? About everything you need to know to be free has been covered. And you're on your path to freedom. So we went down the road a little farther. How many times have I told you that the mind is the filter to the heart? We went down the road a little farther and... Uh, what gets to the heart comes through the mind. Uh, we went down the road a little farther. And, and what's out of the heart comes out of the mind. You're just beginning in a journey. This month marks a new journey for the Third Coast Festival. We're now officially an independent, nonprofit organization. So what does that mean? Well, happily, it means that we still have very strong ties to Chicago Public Radio and we'll keep producing ReSound. But we're on our own now. Like any traveler taking off for points unknown, it's exciting and a little bit frightening, which makes it even more exciting. Today, we take some comfort from our fellow travelers. NPR reporter Elizabeth Arnold, for one, never shies away from a challenge. She's covered a lot of daunting places, like the United States Congress. But when she decided to travel a little farther afield, like to the North Pole, she found the end of the earth much more frightening and bleak than any filibuster or economic downturn. In fact, she swore she'd never go back. But then she did. I swore I'd never go back. I remember walking circles around my tent and crying myself to sleep in the cold and the um, my eyelashes freezing together. But uh, here I am, I'm getting ready to get on a Russian plane headed for the North Pole. And uh, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> we fly for hours above a continent-sized jigsaw of fractured ice. Splinters of open leads reveal the blackness of the Arctic Ocean below. We're told the makeshift runway on the ice where we're headed is cracked. No one's sure what'll happen when we land. But it holds and we arrive at Camp Borneo, about 60 miles from the pole. And it's this really strange, temporary floating ice camp. A couple of big blue tents and a bunch of vodka-drinking Russians. Like Victor Boryaski, who's crossed Antarctica by dog sled and skied the pole too many times to count. He presides over Borneo. His concerns today include the cracked runway, two tents that need to be moved due to shifting ice, and a bulldozer which went through the ice trying to clear the new runway. But he says there's no place he'd rather be because it's always changing and, and it's never the same. North Pole is different. North Pole is the same. Hundreds of miles around the same. Boryaski says because there's no landmark, the North Pole has to be inside you. His friend, Jean-Louis Etienne, an elderly Frenchman, agrees. You feel like you are at home, and you have a place on Earth where you feel 
strong where you feel as it's your identity that you feel as a, a part of yourself. I wasn't feeling strong just yet. I was just trying not to feel cold. I've got everything I brought on, everything. Seven pairs of socks. And I have more down than a flock of ducks. Anyway, I'm standing in these big boots that are rated 140 degrees below. It's probably about 40 below right now. My feet are cold. But I had the same boots on as Borge Ausland, who I met on the way up. He's the first man to reach the North Pole alone, totally unsupported. He's since done it in winter, in complete darkness. It's a mental thing. It's the mental thing of standing on the top of the world. When I'm up there, I feel small, and I think it's good to feel small. We can build skyscrapers or we can go to the space, but nothing can beat nature. A trip to the pole is just a kind of meditation for me. It's a philosophy. This is only my second trip, so I'm not exactly philosophical at this point. In fact, I'm more focused on whether I'm even going to make it. And that sort of triggers this weird sense of um, survival that I've been having. Like I'm hungry for things I normally wouldn't eat. And I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I saw this chocolate bar. And um, I took it. <laughs> it wasn't mine. You know, I don't even like chocolate. <laughs> After a couple more days there in camp, the weather got better enough to get us closer. And on the way, we stopped to resupply these two explorers who'd been on the ice for two months. Len Hubert and Dixie Danziker. And the day before, they'd reached the pole from the northern coast of Siberia. And then they were headed to Greenland for another two months on the ice. Every gram is too much. <laughs> Don't want it. So Dixie's carefully packing his sled meticulously, one thing at a time. Oh, look at this. He's joking as a land. What a chaos. He's hastily throwing his stuff into his sled. Different personalities. <laughs> Dixie's been to the pole before, but even so. The whole thing was just... Bad, bad, bad. Headwinds, uh, a maze of open water and, and leads. And you really have to work hard to get to that mythical place, which is so volatile. Because as soon as you get there, you're already gone. Yeah. <laughs> With the wind. And... Okay, well, today's North Pole Day. So now it's my turn, and my expedition isn't nearly as arduous as theirs. Okay, my sled is a lot lighter. It's pretty obvious where to go and where not to go, right? Yeah. But out there, other than my own breathing, it's it's utterly quiet. There's a complete and total absence of life. There's no birds, there's no animals, there's no trees. It's just snow and ice. And maybe that's what makes it feel so still. I walked and skied for hours. There's something a little unnerving about the scale. You know, I just feel really small. You know, that's, people say that about being in the mountains. And, but I mean, this is really small and vulnerable. See, this is really not good ice right here. 
myself as light as possible. And, you know, you're alone on the ice. Something a little unnerving when you take a step and these little tiny cracks shoot out. I remember being cold, but I was, I was also really just happy. My brain is working a lot faster than my hands are. The ice and the sky were the same shade of white. I can't see a thing. It was completely flat in all directions. And the horizon is defined only by the blueness of, of the snow drifts, this wind sculpted like meringue. Other than that, everything's white. Okay. Well... I'm standing at the North Pole. Who gets to say that? I'm in the company of dead men with big dreams and extreme adventurers and scientists and complete and total wackos. I am standing right now at the North Pole. The North Pole. Let's see, make sure here. Still right on this spot. That's what the GPS says. 90 degrees. So, this is right this minute, for this very minute anyway, really the top of the world. Okay, well, if I move in any direction, even just a step, I'll be heading south. That's the thing about it. You're never at the pole for very long. You can't be. It's hard to imagine, but the ice I'm standing on is moving four feet a second or more. And so just in the time that it took me to say what I've said so far, <laughs> let's see, look at my GPS. The pole's moved, so I'm not at the pole. I'm gonna go <laughs> over here. Yeah, and it's not that the pole has moved, it's that the ice that I'm standing on has moved. And sometimes you can actually see it as, as these cracks, these tiny little cracks appear. And then they open into the Arctic Ocean, which is only a few feet below where I'm standing. And that's pretty hard to forget, because one minute you're there walking along on top of the ice, and the next you've fallen through. Legs and feet, you're soaking wet, and it's 40 below. If anything goes wrong, I mean, that nobody can help me. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden you're in a swimming pool, and you look around, and there's no edge to swim to, to hang on. Now, that's the sense that you get when you're here, is that um, it's this feeling that you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> Somebody said it's a place that wants you dead. That's a little melodramatic, but you gotta be careful. And nature doesn't want you here, and the ice doesn't want you here, and your mom doesn't want you here. <laughs> so why are you here? I don't know, maybe that's part of the pull. You know, maybe you come to uh, defy it. Oh my oh, God! Oh, slight fade! <laughs> oh my yeah. God! These days, of course, with a lot of money, a lot of money, and some cold weather experience, you can get to 90 degrees north pretty easily. Even Borgay Auslin, the guy who called the pole a meditation, 
He's now guiding short trips to pay for his own expeditions, and there he was hitting a golf ball with his clients who had given up trying to ski there after a couple of days and were airlifted there. Hey, Leslie and Christian, it's, it's Neil, it's Dad, and uh, I'm calling you from the North Pole. Made it here and uh, heading yeah, back. Yeah, the, the cell phone call sure and the golf. When I can or when I get email service. Surprisingly, okay. it didn't take away at all from what I had done to get there. anymore and I can't feel my feet so I think my time to get right on top of it again you know I wasn't a first I wasn't the first to do anything or be anything at the pole and yet for me you have the same urge and you've done the same thing that so many other sort of crazy people for their own reasons have been there and probably thought some of the same things that you're thinking so there's a connection. And that was enough. I'm standing on the North Pole. I don't really want to stand here much longer because I gotta move. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be standing in this spot for a long time. I just wanna kinda savor this. Ninety Degrees North was produced by Elizabeth Arnold for the radio series Stories from the Heart of the Land by Atlantic Public Media. You're just beginning in a journey. Now let's just make sure I get this right. In 86, that was when you were the first known woman to cross the ice to the North Pole. And 93 was when you were the first woman to, to, to go to the South Pole, is that correct? That's correct. It was a dream that I'd always had. Uh, as a young girl, I wanted to go as far north as possible. I wanted to travel by dog team. And I, you know, I love to talk about traveling with seven men and 49 male dogs, because we went by <laughs> dog team. Perhaps I wasn't just chasing my own childhood dream of wanting to get to the top of the world. I was feeling a bit more weight on my sled and, and was aware of that at, at that point and, and, and certainly when I got home. Sometimes the simplest trips we take can be even more complicated than traveling to the farthest points on the map. When Lee Ellen Shoemaker left her doctor's office after receiving a difficult diagnosis, she had no idea which way to go or how to get there. I was injected on March the 4th, 2005. The rainbow is a division of white light into many beautiful colors. These take the shape of a long, round arch. 
with its path, high above and its two ends apparently beyond the horizon. I will say eee for a long time. We mow our lawn all year. We eat apples and eggs. The puppy bit the tape. Leellen Shoemaker isn't losing her mind. Sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. She's losing her voice. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please what you just heard is one of the vocal exercises Leellen records every day for her doctor. A few years ago, she came down with a rare neurological condition called spasmodic dysphonia. I remember when this first happened. The weird thing about it was, even though I couldn't speak, I could sing. I said, well, I can talk good enough, but if I couldn't sing, I don't know what I would do. Shoemaker calls herself the tunnel singer. She's what you might call acoustically obsessed. She spends a lot of time looking for echoey places to sing. When I was very young, we had a coal bin in our cellar that was empty. And I loved to go down there and just make sounds. And anytime I would be in a space that I could hear something different, I had to test it out. I was on jury duty one time <laughs> in the Hall of Justice. There are these long marble halls in the parking garage near the hospital where I worked. A seven-story stairwell. When I became unable to sing, it really, really was hard. I've tried so many alternative therapies. She tried voice rest, hormonal supplements, biofeedback. Nothing really worked. Until finally, Shoemaker went to a speech pathologist who correctly diagnosed her condition. What actually happens is that the vocal cords go into involuntary spasms. The spasms will sometimes intensify. If I just do something to break the pattern, like, <laughs> if I laugh like that, my voice will come back. If I pat myself on the head, if I do weird things with my hands, my voice will get strong again. I love that laughing makes your voice come back. Yeah, it's better than crying, right? The yeah. standard treatment for spasmodic dysphonia is Botox. It temporarily paralyzes muscles, so when Botox is injected into the larynx, it stops the spasms. We're in the office of Dr. Mark Curie of the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. Now, I have to figure out how to get a slightly better view of your vocal cords. So, picture the scene. Lee Ellen is sitting in a chair, kind of like a dental chair. Dr. Curie is holding a tiny camera mounted on a curved rod that's pointing down her throat. We can see an image of Shoemaker's larynx and the pink tissue surrounding it, pulsing, projected onto a video screen. It's kind of weird, but also fascinating. You're going to lean forward for me. You're going to stick your tongue out. You're going to hold on to it right here and just bring it forward. 
I'm going to take this here. The next thing that happens is Dr. Corey takes a syringe that's filled with local anesthetic and drips it down Shoemaker's throat onto her vocal folds. It takes a few tries. Once she's numb, he then injects the Botox with a long, curved needle. It's not an easy process for either of them. At one point, I can hear Shoemaker sort of croaking, chocolate milkshake. So afterwards, I take her out for one. You get the injection, you pass through a period of good voice because the paralysis starts, but then you go past that point and more and more gets more paralyzed. And then it starts coming back, but then you have a period of hopefully about three to four months of good voice. And then the spasms start again. It's Saturday, the day after her Botox treatment, and we're up at the Marin Headlands Tunnel testing her voice. We don't know whether I'll be able to regain my voice again. There's just something so personally rewarding to be able to stand in a tunnel. It's a very transformative experience for me. Being able to use my voice always was a huge part of how I saw myself. Have you had dreams about singing since you oh. haven't been able to? Yes, I sing a lot in my dreams. In fact, I can hit notes in my dreams that I never could hit when I was awake. <laughs> you know, the funny thing about it is when I dream that I'm singing, when I wake up, I don't feel at all disappointed. I feel like I actually did it, and it's that same kind of feeling of, of peace and satisfaction. Singer was produced by Catherine Girardot for Earprint Productions. 
You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. Do you sing in tunnels? Make interesting sounds with a bicycle wheel? Does a beautiful bird sing outside your kitchen window? If so, we are interested in hearing it. Send a minute or two of your sounds, mp3s please, to thirdcoastfestival at gmail.com. It's a road map that has many twists and many turns. Neil Armstrong reported back when he received the good wishes. Thank you very much. We know it will be a good flight. Good luck and Godspeed. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. And now, on this show about maps and journeys and travel, we take a different kind of trip, back in time, to a different era, an era when this country needed something to rally around and found it in the global race to the moon. Producer Peter Boshan has put together an amazing montage that celebrates all the glory of the 1969 event that changed the world by simply blasting out of it. 11, uh, you got a pretty big audience. It's live in the U.S. It's going live to Japan. Apollo 11, this is Houston, over. It's a beautiful sight. Roger, understand. Number one on the runway. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. of a century ago, Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation ravaged by depression, gripped in fear. He could say, in surveying the nation's troubles, they concern, thank God, only material things. Our crisis today is in reverse. We find ourselves rich in goods, but ragged in spirit, reaching with magnificent precision for the moon but falling into raucous discord on Earth. It was a battleground. No one, unless identified, was allowed on the street. T-minus 10 minutes and counting. T-minus 10. We're aiming for our planned liftoff at 33 minutes past the hour. This is Kennedy Launch Control. I don't know why people who have not been on rockets continue to ask. You were not scared? No, we were not scared. And until something happens, then it's time to get scared. We just passed the two-minute mark in the countdown. T-minus one minute, 54 seconds. Uh, they had thrown me a pistol about 10 minutes before this occurred. And uh, uh, with all the luck that I've had uh, all of my life, 
Uh, I got him before he got me. With the I'm pistol. Sorry. And he had what? An M16. And you got him. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T minus 25 seconds. General, how would you uh, assess what is the enemy doing on these major attacks? 20 seconds and counting. T minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. At the moment of liftoff, there were numbers changing on the dashboard. There were sounds indicating in the voice loop that we'd had liftoff. But what did we feel? Hardly a day has passed in this war without the death or wounding of innocent civilians. I don't know why people who've not been on rockets continue to ask. You're not scared? See me. What did we feel? But what did we feel? But what did we feel? 1968 in this country was a disastrous year. We had several assassinations. Uh, not too good. So we needed something really to cap it up that was positive to give the American people a sense of of accomplishment or at least satisfaction of something. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We choose to go to the moon. July 16, 1969. Eight years, one month, and 22 days after President Kennedy's challenge, NASA was ready to turn the dream into reality. There is only one thing, Ralph, that's missing from my Disneyland. Only one thing, the world of tomorrow. I have nothing from the world of tomorrow. You want the world of tomorrow, Alice? <laughs> want the world of tomorrow? I'll give you the world of tomorrow. Get going to the moon! The dream of man. The long, impossible dream to reach out to the moon is coming true. These men will lead the way. Our crisis today is in reverse. We find ourselves rich in goods, but ragged in spirit. Reaching with magnificent precision for the moon, but falling into raucous discord on Earth. We are caught in war wanting peace. We're torn by division wanting unity.
Produced by Peter Boshan. Peter works at WBAI, a beloved community radio station in New York City, and he specializes in remixes like the one you just heard, which he calls shortcuts. To hear more, including one that chronicles Obama's rise to the presidency, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on Resound. You're free to be you. Instead of being turned into somebody you're never intended to be. Of all the places you can go to or discover, I think the hardest place to conquer is the spot right under your own feet. Who you are, what you're doing here. These questions have dogged philosophers and psychologists and great thinkers, along with quite possibly every person who's ever roamed the earth. Well, for most of his high school career in Brooklyn, a young man named Lewis lived in a way that he later came to regret. So he set about trying to untangle the knot his life had become by asking and answering the big questions. With a lot of thought and burgeoning insight, he tells his story. It's called Running From Myself. It's me and him. And then behind them, and then behind them is his, is his boys. And then 
Next to his boys is you. So all of y'all ready to do something because all of y'all had your hands in your pocket. So I know. I know. I know most of y'all must have something on y'all. You're, you're mentioning like, I'm a, like I was against you, dude. Nah, 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 nah. You was with me. You know, you know what happened? While, while dude was talking to me, you I did. was thinking, yo, if I pull out my knife, the Sylvia have my back. <laughs> yo, 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 if I get him and he gets me. Will Sylvia have my back? Yo, I was dead. I was Thanks thinking that. Thanks for questioning my loyalty. Bro. Nah, 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 nah. It's cause, it's cause I, I was thinking like, like if I lose, how it's gonna happen? Cause, cause. I'm Lewis, 18 years old, raised in the Bronx, and this is me and my boy Sylvia having a talk. You see, I spent my four years of high school stealing and selling drugs, mostly mugging other kids and people in nearby neighborhoods. I never got caught. In the beginning of my senior year, I decided to stop, to change my life, to leave the old me behind. The point of this conversation with Silvio was to speak about the change I've made. At that time, I felt I changed my way of thinking, but as I hear it now, I noticed the pride in that voice. I felt so alive retelling my crime. Now I wonder if the change in mentality I claim is real. Sure, I haven't robbed anyone in a while, but if my attitude about it is the same, then what's really changed? Can I say I'm any different? Can I be sure I won't start stealing again tomorrow? I don't know. I remember having the same pride when I spoke to my friend Anthony about the first time I robbed someone, about how in eighth grade, my friends and I jumped a guy and stole his chain and jacket. I remember talking about the excitement I felt, excitement that I wanted to relive as I told Anthony my story. We ran like for like two, three blocks or something, and then turned the corner and ran some more, and then ran into a building. And my heart was beating super fast, and like my face was red, and I was like breathing heavy, but yeah, I had a lot of energy. And then there we all start like laughing for like what we did, and then we all like feeling all good and and like me personally, like it felt real good, like just robbing somebody and like taking their stuff, and it kind of put me in a position of power, and power feels good to anybody. So robbing somebody and just leaving there all vulnerable and taking the stuff. Felt real good. Like, I felt the rush. I felt the adrenaline. And, like, I kind of wanted more. Like, I was like, yo, there's no problem with this. I could do this. It feels good. When you were, when you guys were actually on the guy, did it feel the same way then? Or did it feel, or there, is there, like, an element of maybe something's going to go wrong? I don't know about my other friends, but me, I was thinking, like, I hope nobody calls the cops on us. I hope nobody, like, somehow gets, like, our fingerprints. And, like, because, like, if we get caught by the cops, then my mom finds out. And my mom finds out, you know, that's, like, the worst thing that can happen to me. Cause, because, like, I want my mom to know what I'm doing. You know, she's going to get all mad and disappointed and this and that. And, and, and for me, like, disappointment hurts more than any other type of emotion. So I, I just didn't want her to find out that was my only fear. I gave up Dylan Stillen when I was a high school senior, but how long can I keep the animal caged? There are nights when I'm outside and I do feel like robbing someone, but I don't act on it. I spent four years lying and hiding my dirt from my family. 
regaining their love and trust was a difficult task and I don't want to risk losing it again. I wish my brain had a reset button so I can erase my past. Maybe a reminder of the old me will clear these uncertainties. The only person who can help me with this is Eugenia. She's been my close friend and support throughout my four years in high school. I'm gonna call her up and see what she has to say. What up, Eugenia? How you doing? Hi, Louis. What's up? Nothing, chilling, chilling. Yo, um, I was just calling you up because you know me mad long for like four years and everything. Yeah. So, because you know me that long, you basically have seen how I've changed throughout these years. So I just want you to like describe to me how I was when you met me, like what you thought of me when you first saw me, like what kind of person you thought I was from mm-hmm. then to now. Yeah, I can do that. When I first met, I thought you were very immature because you and your hat there, the ghetto, you know, the baggy clothes, always the gray, the white and the black. And then I started getting to know you a little bit more, you know, as the years went by. And I started realizing that you were hiding something. We started talking more and more and more, and I started telling you about my thing. And we started talking as friends more than friends. You were like my brother to me. Right, right. And as we are now. Yeah, right, sister. <laughs> and then, though, like early September, we were in Miss Chang's class. You sat right behind me. I remember going to the classroom, saying hi to everybody else. And then the late bell ringing and seeing your seat empty. And it wasn't just like one day at a week or something. It was basically like three, four days. And everybody was asking, where's Lewis? Where's Lewis? Where's Lewis? And now I have to make some excuse. Oh, he's sick or his mom is doing something or whatever. Until I got to the point where there was no more excuses to give. And it was all because of the streets. You were out in the streets stealing and seeing my brother, my best friend, going downhill. Mm-hmm. It was it was a pleasant being there to see you let yourself go. Right. No, no, I, like, I really feel you on that. But then you started talking, oh, I'm not even going to go to college. I'm not going to fill up to any application. And I got pissed. I really just didn't want to talk to you anymore because you were so strong throughout the, the years, and then now it's like you don't want anything. And even though you said you didn't care, the face you had when you received your report card, <laughs> no, it's just horrible. Mm. And you know me, I seriously did not want to talk to you at all. I didn't want to talk to the lazy bum. <laughs> okay. And having all the support there, hi. All right, if you put it that way, damn. <laughs> being mad harsh. You know I still love you. Talking to Eugenia made me realize I really messed up. As she described me, I felt sorry for myself because I was so ignorant at that time. But I also felt hate for the person she was describing because I knew I could have stopped long ago, but waited till the last year of high school to start changing. After a conversation, I flashed back to the moment I robbed my first victim and thought of the reasons I decided to do it. The only explanation that came to mind was that I was tired of being poor. My stepdad left my mom a few months before and she was stuck with all the bills. I was now the man of the house and I felt I had to be strong and bring in some sort of income, at least for myself. I tried to get a job, but no one wanted to hire a 13 year old. I've matured since then and realized that much of my macho views came from my stepfather. 
He wasn't the best father figure, but I did look up to him. He was kind to me when he entered my life. But as the years went by, he began calling me weak and overweight and would say I was exaggerating whenever my emotions would get hurt. To him, name calling was a game, but not to me. When he left, I did cry. Not because he was leaving, but because I couldn't hit him. Today I wonder how else he's impacted my life and if his teachings helped lead me to the bad choices I've made. To answer this, I'm gonna need a professional's opinion. I know you're the person to speak to. There's a social worker by the name of Erica at the violence prevention program I go to. I hope her analysis can help. I, I just want you to like tell me from your perspective as a social worker, what are my issues with my past and like I want to know how will it affect me later on and with my involvement with other people. So, I mean, you're free to say whatever you want. Okay. Well, I think you're taking a big step in dealing with it simply by being involved in this program because it's a violence prevention program. And with gender roles, we've done so much work on that. The man box. And from what I understand from your history, your stepfather was a very negative influence and the original abandonment by your birth father, that has an impact because as early as infancy, you're learning from the people around you. And by not having a father there, where are you getting the sense of manhood? How are you supposed to learn what it is to be a real man when you're not surrounded by one? So you have this man come into your life who sometimes is nurturing and sometimes is like really super harsh on you, like you better be strong and carry this and don't cry because only girls cry. When you're getting all of that, it's not only giving you a negative sense of what it is to be a man, but it's also putting down women. At what point you start hurting other people, whether it's mugging and robbing, threatening and scaring, that comes from a place inside of you where you don't feel good about yourself, you don't respect yourself. So you're willing to do the despicable because if you had any self-worth, you wouldn't do that to another person. But you don't have the self-worth because you have the messages embedded in you that you're a wimp, you're a whiner, you're a girly man, you're not a real man, you're not strong. And that you're too sensitive because didn't you get tagged with that label that you were too sensitive because you were so close to your mother? Yeah, but like, I never did the stealing thing because self-hatred. I, I respect myself to the fullest. Then the tough question is, why did you do it? Because like, during the time I was stealing, I noticed, you know, my mom was having a problem with the bills. My mom's struggling, and I, I hate seeing it. I hate seeing my mother suffer. So what I figured was that, you know what? So many people out there are doing what's wrong and getting what they want. So why shouldn't I? I can understand that because I've heard people who are drug dealers use the same rationale. But when you got to think about it is you're hurting somebody else. And what gets you to the point where you have it in you to actually hurt somebody else? It's not easy, but you have to look at the feeling behind the feeling. Initially, you're robbing people because you need to get stuff and support your family. You don't want to see your mom working so hard. But where does the anger come in? Maybe you blame yourself for why her relationship with Jose didn't work, so that you cost your family some stability in that respect, and then your mom had to go back to the two-job thing. That comes from someplace inside of you, and it's not the easiest thing to recognize. It's deep in there, and it takes some work. 
like like what you're telling me now, stuff that like I I really don't don't think of. And um, I just want to, you know, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for having this conversation with me. I mean, it was really nice for you. And um, it's, it's thank you. I mean, anytime. I you give me hope, and I need you to understand that that's coming from the heart. All right. I mean, okay, cool. I'm not gonna cry. All right, thanks. <laughs> So far, I've talked about how I don't trust that I've actually changed my street mentality after giving up my life a crime. But now let me speak about what made me stop. At around November 2005, my life was far from cheerful. I was failing my classes and disappointing everyone around me. My friends tried to reach out to me, but I just wanted everyone to get off my case. I didn't like being home because the apartment was usually quiet because no one wanted to speak to me. When my mother tried to talk, it would always spark an argument and end with my mother locking herself in her room and me leaving the apartment until later at night. By December 2005, I'd managed to become distant from everyone I loved. I was losing sleep because I was selling drugs every night and yet waking up early every day to make it to class. Trying to be a high school student and keep my street credibility was an exhausting task. One night, I came home late and had an argument with my mother. I can still vividly remember what happened that night. I get home, my mom's like, Louis, what happened to you? Like, she's all worried. I'm like, yo, calm down, mind your business. And then, like, she starts screaming at me, this is my business, you are my business, and this and that. And I said, yo, shut up and mind your business. I, I really got loud with her. And then I just go to my room, and then... I'm there, like, you're sitting there just trying to calm down because I usually take a long time to, you know, try to release, like, my anger and this and that. But then I was kind of like, ah, I should go ahead and go say sorry to my mom. So I leave my room. I walk the hall. I go to her bedroom. But her door is, like, mostly closed, but just a little bit is open. Then I start hearing her on the phone, like, she's having a conversation. So I start being nosy and just listening, like, so she's talking to my grandmother and she's crying. She's talking about me. She's talking about like, oh, like, what did I do wrong? Or how did, why did Lewis turn out this way? Like, it's all my fault, it's all my fault. And she's crying on the phone. Like, she could barely talk. Like, she's skipping words. She's not finishing words because she's crying. When, like, when I heard that, like, I felt like, like, I was trying to hold my tears. So, like, I can describe it as, like, my heart just getting flooded with, with like all the tears and like I felt like my heart like like it was being squeezed I felt like my mouth was dry I felt my mouth completely dry and I was like like how could I you know be like this how could I make the woman that has you know raised me and all that how can I make her cry like that I felt like a monster and then I, I just walked away, like, with my head down, I just walked away, and I went to my room, and I started crying even more, and, um, you know, just stayed in my room, and I, I decided, you know what, I might as well just go to sleep, but I couldn't get the idea, like, the thought that I had the whole event out of my head, so I just, I, you know, I stayed up, like, the whole night, and I just decided that I needed change. But change didn't come that easy for me. Depression hit me hard after I gave up crime. When I stopped selling drugs, I became a traitor to the people I dealt with. All the respect that neighborhood gave me was gone. 
I felt hurt because that respect was the only power I had. I wasn't doing good in school. I wasn't a good son. I wasn't making the amount of money I made before. And I didn't have anyone to talk to. I felt worthless. Dealing with depression was a struggle, but focusing my attention on my job and seeking help from social workers in my school helped me conquer it. It was a long process, but ultimately, I learned to express my emotions more freely and managed to strengthen the bonds between me and my family. It's now April 2007. Over a year has passed since I decided to change. Sometimes I find myself reminiscing on the times I was a bad boy or boasting to my friends about the negative life I lived. When I first started this project, I thought of those things as warning signs, signs that I haven't completely erased my past. But talking to these people, to Silvio, Eugenia, and Erica, and thinking about my life, I've realized that I I can't make my past disappear. I try to make a distinction between my old self and my present self when in fact we're the same person. The past has made me who I am today. Running From Myself was produced by Lewis along with Anthony Mascoro at 826 NYC, a writing and tutoring center in Brooklyn with help from Jay Allison at transom.org. You don't have to look at a map to get to us. A quick click of the mouse will do it. Send us questions, comments, stories, recipes. We don't care. We just love to hear from you. Write to us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. And quickly, before we go, we've got one more bit of sound for you, which comes to us from one of the most remote places in the entire world. Delaney Hall, the producer of ReSound, has been collaborating with Eric Shirikov, a scientist at the South Pole who's spending 11 months of his life at the bottom of the world. He's been keeping an audio diary about his life in Antarctica. Here's the sound of his boots crunching through the snow. Now just imagine, it's wintertime there and dark all the time and stretching all the way to the horizon, nothing but ice. It's really quite beautiful out today. Tiny bit of haze way off on the horizon. Otherwise, uh, perfectly clear sky. The moon is so bright, you don't see a whole lot of stars. When the moon is down, it's astonishing how, how bright the sky actually is. Living in a city, it's, uh, it's easy to forget that you live in a galaxy. Out here, you're reminded of it every day. That was the sound of boots crunching through the snow at the South Pole. You're just beginning in a journey. 
ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Carly Nix and Stanzi Vobel are our trusty interns. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and sponsorship from Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and ExploreChicago.org, the city of Chicago's official tourism website. The festival is produced in partnership with the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and was founded by Chicago Public Radio. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.